0: Sermon lesson this morning is actually going to be taken from two places in our scriptures. It's going to be taken uh, from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and also the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Why we're concentrating the sermon on both these portions of the text is going to be clear as we read them. It's going to show you a really cool example about how the Old Testament and the New Testament are so. Uh, completely united, and how Christ is the bridge that ties both the Old and the New Testament together. Exodus chapter 34 is the account of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai uh, with the two tablets, that is, the Ten Commandments. We'll pick it up at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commandments the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is the word of our God. We're going to flip ahead to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, begin reading 10 verses at verse 7. Here the apostle Paul is using this instance that took place in the history of Israel as an illustration of how the law is limited, how the law and following the law can't save us. It can only lead us to death, but how Christ is the fulfillment of the law and Christ opened up the way for us come to our God. This is what he wrote. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glorious glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope We are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this very day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. This is the word of our God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you were to jump on the internet and Google the most dangerous words, do you know what you'd find? You'd find a lot of opinions, that's for sure. I mean, how, how is it that you qualify what the most dangerous words are? Think about it. There's a lot of different opinions. If you go on to some self-help author's site, one of them that you found was this. The most dangerous words are, I can't. Never say you can't, was what this author advised. Another one uh, offering a bit of self-help said, uh, some very dangerous words are to say this phrase, it is what it is. The author ca- cautions, sure, if your tire's flat, you can say it is what it is, but be careful, it can be dangerous if you just say it is what it is because it reflects a bit of fatalistic attitude. It reflects maybe a, a victim mentality that isn't going to help you when you're, when you're down on things. People who are interested in business in growing businesses of all types said the most dangerous words that any organization can ever say is this. Well, that's just the way we've always done things around here. If you ever want to kill an organization, if you ever want to just keep the status quo, they said those are some dangerous words that will do just that. But psychologists said it's not a bunch of words. It's just one word actually that is the most dangerous word. And they have proof to show it. It's the word no. When you say the word no, people's behaviors change. When you hook someone up to MRI machines and read what's happening in their brain, a lot of negative neurological action is happening in the brain just from reading the word no. But that's not it. You want to know what the most dangerous words in the entire world are? I'm actually going to ask you to say them with me right now. Some of you just got some pretty wide eyes, but don't worry. These words are actually words that we've said before. We've said dozens and dozens of times before, and I bet you've said them hundreds of times before. Would you read them with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's it. It's the Lord's Prayer the Lord's Prayer, which was taught to us by the Son of God, which is said in churches and in chapels and in cathedrals and in movies and in sports stadiums and in families' homes and the privacy of our own minds is the most dangerous words ever spoken in the history of the world. I've heard it said that if there could be one of the most martyred or the greatest martyred things in the entire history of the Christian church? It was the Lord's Prayer. Because if you could turn wandering thoughts into daggers, the Lord's Prayer would be killed a thousand times over every Sunday in every church. That's why it's the most dangerous words. Because the Lord's Prayer, while a blessing, while a good thing, while something given to us by God? Tell me if I'm wrong, it's perhaps often said lazily and without meaning. How many times haven't you heard the sermon get over? We stand up, we say prayers, and before you realize what's happening and your mind catches up with your mouth, you just said amen. How many parents could do this? could turn over, discipline their children, get them to, you know, stand in, in line without missing a beat and saying the Lord's Prayer during the whole time. Could you do that? I think maybe some of you have done that before. <laughs> How often haven't we said the Lord's Prayer where we're thinking about the roast beef fam- sandwich that we're gonna have for lunch and the entire time we're speaking with pastor some words that he's saying and we haven't even thought about it. The Lord's prayer is dangerous because it is a good thing. It is a prayer given to us by the Prince of Peace. And it's something that we kind of go about without thought and oftentimes without a whole lot of meaning. But what if it wasn't that way? What if the Lord's prayer wasn't just 60 words that we said on autopilot every single week that we gathered together? What if the Lord's Prayer was about the things that you care the most about? What if the Lord's Prayer was actually a prayer for your mom or your dad or your grandparents who are, who are dealing with Alzheimer's? What if the Lord's Prayer was actually a prayer for the friends, the loved ones that you have in your life who are sick Who are suffering, who are dealing with cancer, or dealing with an illness that you don't or they don't understand or know what it is? What if the Lord's Prayer was for families? What if the Lord's Prayer was for marriages to be even stronger than they already are? What if the Lord's Prayer was for the people in our lives and the people in our communities who are dealing with stress, who are dealing with anxiety, and people who have had thoughts of suicide? What if the Lord's prayer was a prayer asking God to help and strengthen the people who are struggling with addictions? What if the Lord's prayer was for you? It was for you as you lived your life, as you lived your faith and you strove to be a missionary for Christ, as you strove to live all for one, knowing that there is a God who has lived and died for you. What if that was the Lord's prayer? If that was the Lord's prayer, do you think you'd say it with a bit of passion? I think you would. In fact, I know you would because those are the prayers that you care about. Those are the prayers we care about. Those are the prayers that we have prayed in this church before. Those are the prayers I know that are on the people who are here this morning, their hearts, their minds, and their lips during the week when they go home. And what if that was the Lord's prayer? What if I told you that it was? except it was in Jesus's words. Because if you care about those things, and I know you do, then your lips would care about this prayer because that is exactly what we have in the Lord's prayer. It is everything that you care about. It's everything that our God cares about spoken in his words, spoken with his promises attached to them. I mean, think about what we are praying in the Lord's prayer. It is his promises. It is his words, his gospel good promises spoken right back to him. And that's why this is a dangerous prayer. When we pray our father in heaven, please keep your name holy among us. What else are we praying that our God fill our lives with the glory and the honor and the goodness that is due his name? When we pray thy kingdom come, We're praying that his peace, his forgiveness, and his love come into our hearts and our lives. When we pray thy will be done, we're asking that his will be done in our families, in our homes, and our communities. We pray give us today our daily bread. We're asking for health, for his safety, for his sustenance, for his provision, provision that he has promised, I will give you no matter what. And now that you're asking for it, I'm even more glad to give it to you. When you say, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and, and don't lead us into temptation, what else are you saying except, Lord, exercise your power over sin, the death, and the devil, which I know you have even more in my life? That's why this prayer is dangerous. This prayer is dangerous because it is packed with the powerful promises that Christ has already spoken. And we get to say them back to him. The Lord's prayer is a prayer of passion. It's a prayer of passion that is seen most evidently in the work of Jesus Christ, his passion history, where he fulfilled through his journey to the cross, all the promises That he made in the Old Testament, all the promises that he made in the New Testament, point back to his work on the cross. And if you understand that, this is a prayer that you and I can pray with passion. It's a prayer that we have to pray with passion. If you understand that for 2,000 years, this dangerous, dangerous tool, these dangerous words, has been what the Christian church has employed since the time of the apostles to fight against sin, death, the devil, and anything else that would take us and distract us from our God. During this sermon series, we're going to answer some questions about prayer. We're going to talk about why we can pray. We're going to talk about why it is that we can pray to God in the first place. And we're also going to talk about whom we pray to. In fact, those two questions we're going to answer today. And then for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer and we're going to talk about what exactly am I praying for when I ask God for this. We're going to answer some other questions about prayer too. Are our prayers effective? Do they actually make a difference? How does God hear us? And then on Palm Sunday, we're going to wrap up our series on the Lord's Prayer by asking how do I pray this prayer? That's where we're going during this sermon series as we look at a prayer of passion, that I pray each and every one of you pray with passion. But first that question, why do I pray? And it might seem a bit obvious. You might step back and go, actually, pastor, the question you should be asking is, why can't I pray? I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm in church. Of course I get to pray. I've been praying my whole life, right? Even before I could say my ABCs, my parents were teaching me to say amen. Prayer is what Christians do. Prayer is a right of Christians. Prayer is a responsibility. It's a duty of Christians. No, the question isn't why do I get to pray? It's why shouldn't I pray? Why can't I pray? Right? Did you know it, it wasn't always that way though? Did you know there was actually a time where Jesus didn't listen to your prayers? There's actually a a, a point in history in all of our lives where God did not listen to your voice and he could not hear your voice. And even if you stood up on a table or climbed the highest mountain and yelled to him to get his attention, he wouldn't hear you. It's a scary thought, isn't it? But Isaiah chapter 59 tells us about that time. In Isaiah chapter 59, we read this in verse 2. That your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God. And your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. scary to think about, isn't it? God does not listen to your prayers because of your sins. When Moses went up on the mountain of Mount Sinai and he got the the list of God's commandments, which we know as the 10 commandments, and he brought them back down, this sounds extreme, but what he did is he brought down a barrier between you and between your God. Because in the 10 commandments, what God says, he says clearly, when you break these commands, you sin. And when you sin, I do not listen to you. When you do not honor my name, when you do not honor my Sabbath day, when you squander opportunities to gather around my word and sacraments, I tune you out. When you hurt people, when you cheat, when you lie, I plug my ears. When you are sexually impure, I mute your life. When you gossip, I move so far away from you that no matter what you say, I cannot hear you. That's what your sins do. It's scary to think. Then, your sins separate you from God. But it makes sense when you think about it because God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And we haven't just broken one of the commandments one time. We break all of the commandments all of the time. And compared to a God who is holy and who is full of glory, people who are sinful through and through can't stand next to a God like that. A God like that can't listen to people like that. That's why Moses had to veil his face. Because when he went up to the Mount of and Mount Sinai and came down with the glory of a God who has anger that can be righteous against sin. Well, Israel couldn't look at that. Israel couldn't handle that. But it's a good thing we're not Moses. And it's a good thing we're not Israel. And it's a good thing God's word says this. We're not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away the same veil remains. It has not been removed because, because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you understand what God's word is saying here? When sinners sin, they place a wall in front of themselves and their God. When you do evil things, you, not God, you build up a wall that keeps his love, his grace, his goodness, his light, his freedom from touching you. That's what our sin does. But when Jesus came, he was not only the forgiver of all your sins, he is the way maker and the wall breaker. Jesus Christ came and not only removed your sins, but he removed any obstacle that stood between you and your God, and he made it possible for you to come before your God. That's why we pray. It's because of Jesus. Do you know what happened when Jesus said his last words on the cross? When Jesus let out his last breath, the temple curtain tore in two. When God commanded his temple to be built, he commanded a, temp, uh, a curtain thicker than that to go between the most holy place and the rest of God's people. God's glory dwelt in the most holy place. And only once a year did the most high priest go before the altar of God. But other than that, God's glory was separate from his people. And this curtain stood there as a symbol of what was going on between us and our God. Separation. And when Christ came and fulfilled his mission and did what only he could do, The temple curtain tore in two. The veil was lifted and we could go before our God. We could access our God. We could stand before him. That's why we pray. We pray because Christ lifted the veil and it's only in Christ that we can pray to him. And now your God looks at you. Your God looks at you and he smiles at you. Your Lord of love listens to you. The God of grace hears you. the creator of the world who heard mountains rip up from the ground and who heard seas separate when he created the world, the same God hears my voice when I talk to him. That's why we pray. It's because Christ lifted the veil and made prayer possible. When Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Lord, we see you praying pretty often. We want to know how to do that. Teach us. Teach us how to pray. Jesus answered them by saying, yeah, you guys know how to pray and you guys know who I pray to. You know who I pray to. I pray to God, my Father. But let me tell you how you are to pray to this God. It's not to pray to him like he is some kind of boss that you have to negotiate time off with. You don't talk to him like you talk to a bartender, or at least Hollywood portrays. You talk to a bartender, pouring out your feelings to someone who doesn't know you. You don't talk to him like a bully who's going to beat you up when you do things that he doesn't like. No, right away when God said, here's how you pray, he said, I'm going to tell you, I'm praying to my father but you are to pray to your father. That is how God listens to us. Whom do you pray for? Who do you pray to? You pray to your ideal dad. You pray to someone who just like dear children come before their dear father. You pray to someone who wants to listen to you, who loves to listen to, who cannot wait to listen to you. And I know some of you do have great dads. Some of you are married great dads. Some of you only know okay dads in your life. And some of you know dads in your life that maybe you don't want to talk about. But when God taught us to pray, when Jesus taught his disciples and these disciples who are gathered here today to pray, he said, you are to pray to your father who is in heaven, whose name is holy. And that means something. Because your God is in heaven and because your God is holy, that means you have an ideal dad to whom you pray to. He is powerful. Do you know the average dad can only do 23 push-ups? Yeah, your ideal dad can lift a lot bigger burdens than that. Your God who is in heaven has power, has power to lift anything, including your sins, including your guilt, including your shame, out of your life. Your father, who is in heaven, is always with you. Even the greatest dads who who want to be at all of their kids' events, who want to be there for them all the time, can't possibly be there the way your God is. It's because he's your ideal dad. As we close out this sermon, can I tell you just three ways that your God is just like your ideal dad? Okay, quick show of hands. How many parents in here have ever changed a diaper before. Have you ever done that? Okay, good. All the parents have. Now keep your hands up if you're like me, maybe a little selfish in that you've only changed your kid's diapers. Okay, good to see I'm I'm not the only one in that. One thing that I've noticed as a father is I will be glad to change my son's diapers. When he makes a mess in his diaper, I do it maybe not always with joy, but gladness. I give him a hug, say, come on over here. I'm going to change your diaper. But let me tell you something. Parents, if you bring me your child and you say, here, please change my daughter. Please change my son. I'm going to say, no way, Jose. I'm not that good of a Christian. I don't deal with that. I change my son's diapers and that's it. His messes, not your kid's messes. That's something I've noticed as a parent is that you can always tell whose child goes with which parent because the child cleans up their messes. As cool as it is to have a dad who is holy and who is in heaven, you want to know the coolest thing about your ideal dad? He's yours. He's your dad. And he proved that because he came and he cleaned up Your messes. I don't want to get too graphic in church this morning, but sin is the spiritual stain of life. It is the spiritual stink that just fills our life. And for some of you, the problem with sin in your life is that you just have so much sin and so much stank in your life that it won't go away. But Christ came and He made it go away eternally. And now when he sees you, he only sees the sweet-smelling aroma of his son or his daughter. For some of you, your problem with sin is, the, is just how sick of the stuff that comes out of you. It's because of the unhealthy things that go into you. But your ideal dad does not care. He comes and he cleans it up no matter what it is every single time. For some of you, it's the fact that you've had some major blowouts in your life. You have gotten a mess all over your life and your God comes and he loves you and he changes your clothes and he cares for you and he makes you new and he makes you whole because your ideal dad, well, you can think of him as your dirty diaper dad. He is the dad who cares for you and you alone. He cares for all his children with the same amount of love that an ideal father cares for their children. You want to know something else I've noticed as a parent? This actually happens uh, a couple times a week. Yeah, at least a couple times a week where I will put my son to bed and about an hour later, this feeling comes over me, this really intense feeling comes over me, that when I started to notice this happening, I I couldn't really understand it, but I'm starting to get it a little bit now, is that this kid who just an hour ago or two sat around the supper table throwing his food, who was running around with a running nose, getting it everywhere, and who was showing behavior that could maybe best be described as overly tired, is now quiet in bed and I'm at the place in my day where I'm able to, you know, just, you know, be there with just my adult wife and not our infant son, something happens that I I don't really expect. It's only been an hour, maybe less, but I miss him intensely. I miss him so very much. You know what happens? I turn into a bit of a creeper. I get up, I go upstairs. Before I go to bed, I open up his door and I creep across his room and I stand next to him. I stand there and I just look at him. I just look at him and I just watch him because I just love him that much that I miss him. I can't wait till I see his smile again in a very less creepy way, but in a much deeply meaningful way, that's the kind of God that you have. You have a perpetually present Papa. You have a dad who is always showing up for you. That is what good dads do. They try to show up for their kids and even the greatest dads in this world cannot be at all their children's events, all of their games, all of their recitals all of the time because that's impossible You have a God in heaven. You have an ideal dad in heaven who is always there for you. He showed up in the most meaningful way on the biggest stage possible when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When he came and lived in you and among you and revealed his grace and goodness to you when he died on the cross. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there because now he has promised you that I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And you want to relate this to prayer? He's made this promise. Psalm 50 says, when you're in trouble, call upon me and I will deliver you because I am your perpetually present Papa. I am always with you no matter what. I'm your dirty diaper dad who's going to clean up all your messes no matter what it looks like. I'm there for you. It's two weeks ago, maybe a week ago. I was working in a coffee shop and I was seated near two women, an older woman and a younger woman, and they were talking, they appeared to be pretty good friends, know each other pretty well. But the older woman was describing to the younger one what she did for work. After a while, it became clear she owned her own business and it was a delivery company of sorts that delivered all sorts of things. And she told the younger woman about her day. She said earlier that morning, she delivered a very expensive piece of furniture. And she dropped it off at the multi-million dollar mansion here in Northern Virginia of the owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. She told the story about how she drove the truck up there and the delivery guys with her got out and took it into the house. And It was kind of crazy. As she described this story, you could see the younger woman, like her eyebrows getting lifted and she started to get like kind of giddy and excited as she described this historic mansion that had been remodeled and was super gorgeous and filled with all this awesome furniture that she delivered that morning. She got done telling the story and the young woman did this kind of like giddy little laugh smile thing. And then I took my headphones off and I'm I'm glad I did because I heard her say, the most ridiculous thing. The young woman said, oh my goodness, if I was there, I would have found just Bezos and asked him to adopt me. And then the two laughed like it was funny. Like it was like this real thing and that's a good one. You're going to do that? And I thought to myself, that is the most ridiculous thing you could possibly say. What makes you think that the most wealthy man in the world is just going around adopting people to give them free financial favors? It just, does not happen. And almost as soon as I said that thought, I was reminded of uh, something equally ridiculous and very miraculous. It's God who in his word in Romans chapter 8 said this, when you received the spirit of adoption, that is when you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, By whom we cry out, Abba Father. Now the Spirit Himself testifies together with our Spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, also heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. Imagine if Jeff Bezos, who is worth $135 billion, called you up got a hold of your cell phone, called you up and said, hey, I'm just calling to let you know I've adopted you just to do you a free financial favor, just to give you my inheritance. It's $135 billion. I'm guessing most of you would get excited. I'm hoping most of you would maybe throw a party and invite your pastor over to celebrate the large amount of money that you just came into contact with. I know you would do that. And think about this, someone who is a lot greater, someone who has a lot more treasure stored up for you has done just that. Your God, your ideal dad in heaven has called you up and told you I am adopting you. I am making you mine. I am making you my daughter and my son so that you can share in my inheritance. And as good as you can imagine $135 billion to be, I am giving you more than that. I am giving you a taste of that on earth, but I am giving you so much more than that in heaven. So much more goodness, so much more joy, so much more freedom that you cannot even wrap your mind around what I am giving you. That is your dad. He is your free favor father. He is your dad who has gifts stored up for you, mansions prepared for you in heaven. He is your perpetually present father who is going to be with you until you are with him physically in heaven. And he's your dirty diaper dad who's cleaned up all the messes, all the sin that separates us from him just so that we can be with him in heaven. That's who your ideal dad is. I want you to imagine that. Imagine if that was your dad, because it is. And now imagine if you talked that way to your God. Imagine if you prayed that way every time you opened your mouth or opened up your heart to talk to your God. Can I share with you my favorite verse from our lesson from Exodus 34? It came in verse 29. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. His face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Do you realize that when you talk to your ideal dad, a transformation is happening in you, to you, that is even more glorious than your face becoming just a little bit radiant? Do you realize when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy, holy be your name, that a transformation a trillion times brighter than Moses' face is taking place in your heart, that your God is making you way more glorious, way more holy than Moses ever experienced on this earth, than, than Moses ever knew on this earth, but that Moses is experiencing now in heaven with his God. Can you imagine if you talked to your ideal dad, thinking this, remembering this, in his word, he said this, he said, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's go- glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Father who is the Spirit. Do you just imagine how your life would change if you talked to your God that way, thinking through that? Well, you don't have to imagine because this is what your God said. He said, Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Listen, if you would just remember to pray to your Father who is in heaven as though you were talking to your ideal dad, you would experience so much freedom that you would never ever be tied down by the lies of Satan, the lies that you are not enough, the lies that you do not deserve the love of your Christ. You would never know anything but the boldness that does not bend the confidence to go forth into the world because Christ is with you because he had promised you that I am with you no matter what. You don't have to imagine because these are promises that God kept. These are promises that you pray back to him who is in heaven? Can I admit something kind of silly? When I was five years old, I asked my dad why it is that we fold our hands in church, and why it is that we put our hands together, fold our hands, when we're sitting around the supper table. When I asked my dad that question I remember this I was five, I, I had a pretty good theory. I said, "Dad, is it because the heart has our faith and we need to circulate that, and it's the way God gets it from this side of our arm to this side?" I remember just being really disappointed when my dad told me, no, that's not it. He gave me a far more boring answer. He said, the reason you fold your hands, Matt, is so that you do not poke and play around with your siblings. <laughs> do you guys know what the best po- posture is to have for a prayer? Do you know what the right posture is to have for prayer? Well, it's not one of the questions we're going to spend a lot of time on during this sermon series, because it's not a question that God's word really answers. Because there is no right way to stand, to fold your hands, to kneel or to stand or to lay down. But there is a posture and an attitude, if you will, that our God wants us to have when we come to him. Kind of show you what it looks a lot like? It looks a lot like this. Usain Bolt is the world's fastest man and Uh, At the end of the career, when he established himself as pretty much the fastest person on the face of the earth, uh, he went about his races with a certain level of confidence that is really unprecedented. He would smile as he crossed the finish line. He would celebrate even before the race was over with so much confidence, so much boldness, he would run these races that the photographers just loved capturing these moments. That's how our God wants us to come to him in prayer. Our prayers to our God are not pious little whimpers that we just kind of Eek out from the corners of our hearts and our lives that said, Oh God, if you hear me, I don't know if you can hear me. No, your God does hear you. He wants to hear you. He is your ideal dad who has promised, I will hear you no matter what. And so he said to you, I want you to run. I want you to rush up the stairs of heaven before my throne and ask me what it is that you need because I promise you, I am your Father who is in heaven. My name is holy and I hear your prayers of passion. Would you please stand as we talk to our deal, Dad? Lord of glory and Lord of goodness, we thank you that we get to come before your throne. We thank you that Jesus Christ has torn away the veil, has torn away the border wall that breaks down our chance of getting to be your sons and your daughters. We thank you that he has removed that separation from our hearts and from our lives. We thank you that as dear children, we get to sit at your feet. We get to sit before your throne and pray these prayers to you in confidence, knowing that you hear all of them because all of the prayers that we pray in the Lord's prayer are promises that you have made, promises that you know you will keep because you are our good father. You are our ideal dad. Lord, we ask that you help us to pray this and all our prayers with passion. Amen.